Hello, I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan, and it's time to turn to today's obituaries from the Des Moines Register. From Atlantic, Robert Van Cleve, 91, passed away Thursday, April 30th at Jenny Edmondson Hospital in Council Bluffs. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, a celebration of life service will be held at a later date. Memorials may be left to St. Paul's Lutheran Church of Atlantic or to the American Diabetes Association. Hockenberry Family Care is in charge of arrangements. Condolences may be left at www.hockenberryfamilycare.com. Lloyd Curtis Mann, 85, of Newhall, formerly of Martinsdale, passed away peacefully on Saturday, May 2nd at the Keystone Nursing Care Center. Private family services will be held with the interment at the New Virginia Cemetery in New Virginia. A public memorial service will be held at a date to be announced in Martinsdale. Memorials may be directed to the Keystone Nursing Care Center. Lloyd, known as Curtis to family and friends, was born on January 15, 1935 in Kansas City, Missouri, the son of Lloyd and Jenny Wood Mann. He graduated from New Virginia High School in 1953 and attended Faith Baptist College in Ankeny. On February 17, 1955, he was united in marriage to Shirley Irene Weeks in Omaha, Nebraska. Curtis worked as a manager of Mid-Iowa Computer Center in Des Moines prior to his retirement. He and Shirley have lived in Newhall for the past 14 years. Curtis owned and flew a Cessna tail dragger in his younger years. He loved to sing and play his guitars. He enjoyed family gatherings and spending time with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Surviving to cherish his memory are his wife of 65 years, Shirley, his children, Randy Mann and spouse Debbie of St. Charles, Ron Mann and spouse Susie of Castleoff, Arkansas, Karen Harpole and spouse Jim of Newhall, five grandchildren, Jason and spouse Haley of Alder, Montana, Eric Mann and spouse Julie of Lovell, Wyoming, Luke Mann of Dubuque, Iowa, Bethany Farenhold and spouse David of Wichita, Kansas, Laura King and spouse Rodney of Arlington, Ohio, 10 great-grandchildren and two sisters, Virginia Samilin and spouse Felix and Lloyd Smith, all of Greenwood, South Carolina. Curtis was preceded in death by his parents, two brothers, John Mann and George Mann, and his sister, Ida Mae Smith. Online condolences at www.phillipsfuneralhomes.com. Joyce Abbott, age 87, of Creston, entered eternal rest Thursday, April 30th at the Bright Kavanaugh House in Des Moines. The public is invited to attend a memorial service at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, May 6th at Pearson Pearson Family Funeral Service and Cremation Center at 809 West Montgomery Street in Creston. Reverend Jody Rushing will officiate. Effective May 1st, funeral services are no longer restricted. However, out of an abundance of caution, all in attendance are encouraged to wear a face covering or mask. Inurment will follow at the Rose Hill Cemetery, Nevinville. Memorial contributions may be directed to the family to be determined. Memorials, memories, and condolences may be left online at www.pearsonfuneralhomes.com. Joyce is survived by her four children, Steve Abbott and wife Kathy of Ames, Jeff Abbott of Cherokee, Laura Abbott, 
and spouse husband Tom or and husband Tom Ackerman of Urbandale, and Alicia Abbott of Creston. Five grandchildren: Jennifer Abbott Birch, Jared Abbott, Jill Abbott, Eggenberger, Justin Abbott, and Jessica Abbott. Eight great grandchildren: two sisters, Alice Shannon of Boone, and Norma Butcher of Des Moines. A sister-in-law, Erval Oshel of Osceola. Numerous nieces, nephews, cousins, other relatives, and her special friend, Fred of Des Moines. May God grant comfort and strength to those who mourn. Marilyn Louise Markman, a resident of Kensington, Maryland, passed away on the morning of May 2nd at Holy Cross Hospital in Silver Spring, Maryland, a victim of COVID-19. She was 90 years old. Marilyn was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa the daughter of Lester and Leonore Gates, also of Des Moines. She attended North High School in Des Moines and the State University of Iowa, where she met and married her husband, Sherwin Markman, from whom she divorced in 1980. She is survived by three children, Stephen Madison Markman of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and spouse Peggy Richter, Nicole Marie Markman of Thurmont, Maryland, and Stacy Lynn Markman and spouse Michael Tranfo of Friday Harbor, Washington, as well as one grandson, William Markman Tranfo of Los Angeles, California. She's also survived by her loving companion of over 30 years, Jerome Wilner of Germantown, Maryland. Marilyn was, devoted, was a devoted and caring mother to her children. She was loving and compassionate, encouraging them to seek their own higher aspirations. A creative spirit, she loved to dance and laugh. She was also an accomplished artist, specialing in beautiful and unique collages of painted rice paper. The family is planning a memorial service at an appropriate future date. Eugenia F. Dolsky, known as Jeannie, of West Des Moines, passed away on April 25th. Eugenia was born in Skoll, Poland, on May 12, 1924, to Stanislaw and Maria Swark. Jeannie left Poland for Austria during the latter stages of World War II, joined the Polish Red Cross, and served in northern Italy before being transferred to England in 1946, where she met and married her husband Leon in 1949. They immigrated to Iowa in December 1951 and settled in West Des Moines in 1956. Jeannie was an excellent cook who was well known as the Lady in the Window from the 60s through the 80s at Corso Pizza, formerly at 9th and Grand in West Des Moines. Besides working in her kitchen, Jeannie loved to dance, liked to exercise and go for Sunday drives with Leon. Jeannie was a most loving mother and grandmother that always looked forward to family gatherings, especially during the holidays. Surviving is her son, Wojciech, and spouse Terry of Lenexa, Kansas, Grandson, Adam Dolsky of Fairway, Kansas. Son, Richard, and spouse, Brenda of Chaska, Minnesota. Granddaughter, Gina Osterman and spouse, Jordan. And great-granddaughter, Tess of West St. Paul, Minnesota. Cousins, Jim and John Halsey of West Des Moines. Tony Standera and spouse, Dawn of Bemidji, Minnesota. And a niece, a nephew, a great-niece, and a great-nephew in Zubin, Poland. Eugenia was preceded in death by her husband, Leon, brothers, Joseph and Julian Swark, sister, 
Janina Swark, and grandson Tony Dolsky. There will be a private visitation Wednesday evening, May 6th, at McLaren's Rest Haven Chapel in West Des Moines. A private funeral mass will be held on Thursday, May 7th, at Sacred Heart Church. Interment will follow at Glendale Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be made to Sacred Heart Church. Joyce Ellen Sharp of Johnston, age 95, passed away at Bishop Drum Retirement Center on Friday, May 1st. A family graveside service will be held at Chapel Hill Gardens. A celebration of life for family and friends will be announced at a later date. Born on July 22, 1924, to Martha Stallwood and Sidney Smith in Nettlebed, England, during World War II, Joyce met a young GI, Jack T. Sharp, stationed nearby on July 15, 1942, and married on June 13, 1945. Joyce loved her family, friends, and church. She was an avid gardener, knitter, and winemaker. She loved to cruise and travel. Joyce is survived by her three daughters, Marion Webers and spouse Gary, Sheila Perdue and spouse Marlon McCord, and Lou Johns and spouse Dan. Her sisters, Evelyn Kamichik, possibly known as Sis, I'm not quite clear there, Alice Twine, Brenda Nowak, and Sheila Hayward. Five grandchildren, 10 great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews around the world. Joyce was preceded in death by her husband, Jack T. Sharp, her mother and father, her brother, George Smith, and son-in-law, Marlon Perdue. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to St. James Lutheran Church or Bishop Drum in Johnston. Let's turn to the sports section now of the Des Moines Register. The top article here is by Dargan Southard. The headline, B1G extends suspension on team activities. June 1 set as reevaluation date. The Big Ten Conference announced Monday that all organized team activities will remain suspended until June 1st amid the coronavirus pandemic. A reevaluation will then come at that time. The Big Ten Conference will continue to use this time to work with the appropriate medical experts and institutional leadership to determine next steps relative to the COVID-19 pandemic, the release said. The main priority of the Big Ten Conference is to ensure the health, safety, and wellness of our student-athletes, coaches, administrators, faculty, fans, and media as we continue to monitor all developing and relevant information on the COVID-19 virus." This move comes after the Big Ten has already canceled winter championships and all spring sports as well as put a moratorium on all on- and off-campus recruiting activities for the foreseeable future. The June 1 reevaluation date lines up with with what University of Iowa President Bruce Harold told the Iowa Board of Regents last week when asked for a timeline on football's likeliness this fall. We're ever so hopeful that this virus will be behind us at that point and we'll be able to get back into what we normally do, Harold said. I'm sure our coaches would love a lot more time so they can make them winners, but the key issue here is safety. The big article on the page comes from Nate Davis of the USA Today. It's titled, Football on the Brain, 32 Things We Learned from the 2020 NFL Draft. And there's a fun picture accompanying this article. It is of a a football 
but its shape is actually uh, that of a brain as opposed to a football shape. So the outline is brain shaped. One half split down the middle is a football with the uh, brown leather color and the stitching down the middle. The other half is various circles of multicolors and different shapes. Some of the circles have logos for different teams inside of them. Some of the circles have photographs of coaches and players. And some of the circles are just colored. Other circles are the coronavirus shape with the little um, spigots kind of coming off all the edges of it. So it's a very colorful and amusing illustration for this article today. The 32 things we learned from the 2020 NFL draft. Number one, with so many Americans sheltering in place during the novel coronavirus pandemic, not a major surprise this was the most watched draft ever, consumed by more than 55 million viewers, a 16% increase over last year. Number two, thanks in part to the Draft-a-thon Live, which ran concurrent to the three-day draft, the NFL has now raised more than $100 million for COVID-19 relief initiatives. Bravo. Three, the most compelling aspect of this most unique virtual draft experience was watching the league's general managers and coaches working from their homes, which meant quite a variance of domestic setups. Mike Zimmer's cabin motif with game mounted on the walls was apropos 3A, but Cardinals coach Cliff Kingsbury clearly won the Working Remotely Trophy at his palatial Paradise Valley, Arizona bachelor pad. 3B, and well done, Lori, you cleaned, you clearly belonged on Lego Masters. 3C, if Cliff is busy, we'll gladly bring our laptop and Lego and shack up on Jerry Jones's yacht. And I think this is the final three, 3D. As for the low end of the Homestead Power Rankings, well, sorry to single out Redskins VP of Player, VP of Player Personnel, Kyle Smith. Number four, shout out to Patriots coach Bill Belichick, who pretty successfully avoided being caught on his war room dining room camera, but at least assured his precious pup Nike got sufficient airtime. Five, lastly, how about an attaboy for Roger Goodell? The NFL commish takes a lot of heat, certainly. Some, certainly some of it by design and deserved. Still, he welcomed us into his suburban New York basement and did his best, shepherding his portion of the event through suboptimal conditions. Six, a round of applause for ESPN as well. The worldwide leader, in quotes, did a nice job taking the lead on the draft telecast, smoothly overseen by football savvy anchor Trey Wingo who did his best to orchestrate a simulcast that integrated NFL network analysts, featured numerous remote shots of players, coaches, and team executives, all while dispensing crisp analysis. 6A. Bummer not to see ESPN draft guru Todd McShay contribute to the broadcast as he endures his own battle with coronavirus. At least McShay didn't have to hear Mel Kuyper gloat about winning their bet as to whether Justin Herbert or Jordan Love would be drafted first. McShay, who backed Love, now owes $5,000 to the V Foundation. 6B, also very touching moment when NFL Network Chief Draft Analyst Daniel Jeremiah 
thanked ESPN's Chris Mortensen for helping him get his foot into the door of the media biz two decades ago. Seven, LSU won the draft. Five Bayou Bengals went in round one, including the first overall pick, QB Joe Burrow, and number 32, RB Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Overall, 14 Tigers were plucked from what may eventually be regarded as the greatest college football team in history. 7A, LSU tied a record set by Ohio State in 2016 by placing 10 players in the first three rounds. 7B, LSU tied another Ohio State record set in 2004 for most players picked in a seven-round draft. 7C, Triplets Siren. With Burrow, Edwards-Hilaire, and W.R. Justin Jefferson, LSU became the only school to have a quarterback, running back, and receiver drafted in the first round of the same draft. Eight. The Cardinals have taken to calling the eighth pick of the draft, highly versatile Clemson defender Isaiah Simmons, the eraser. We think they're shading you, George Kittle. Number nine. Unsurprisingly, Ferguson was the only snapper selected. 9A. Two punters were picked. 9B. Three kickers were drafted, same as the number of nose tackles. Oddly, George's Rodrigo Blankenship wasn't one of them. But he did get signed by the Colts, which might mean Adam Vinatieri is officially done in Indianapolis. 9C. Of the 255 players taken, 72, or 28.2%, were underclassmen. 10. The Southeastern Conference had a record 15 of its players drafted Thursday, nearly half of round one's selections. The SEC also landed six players in the top 10, another draft record. Overall, 63 alums from the conference were picked, one short of the record, already owned by the SEC from 2019. 10A. This was the 14th consecutive draft in which the SEC had the most players selected. 11. In what was long touted as a receiver-rich draft, 35 wideouts were picked. 13 were picked by the end of round two, a record. Three teams, Denver, Las Vegas, Philadelphia, selected a trio of wideouts. 12. When your coach and GM can't draft from the same room, it helps to at least be neighbors. And yes, the Ravens hit it out of the park again. 13. The Patriots took another Alabama product, OLB and Fernie Jennings, marking the 10th time Belichick selected one of Nick Saban's players. It marks the most times in the common draft era, which is since 1967, that a coach-to-coach pipeline has been used with such frequency. Number 14. Tua Tagovailoa, selected fifth overall by the Dolphins, became the highest drafted quarterback Alabama has ever produced, topping former New York Jet Richard Todd, who was the number six pick in 1976. Tagovailoa also became the first southpaw passer drafted since Sean Canfield in 2010, a stretch that saw 106 consecutive right-handed quarterbacks picked, according to ESPN stats and info. Finally, Tagovailoa was the first quarterback from a Saban coach team picked in round one. 15. The Vikings picked 15 players, most ever in a seven-round draft. What can they possibly think they're going to do with 15 new players? Good thing for the new CBA will expand roster flexibility. 16. Dan Marino, in 1995, was the last Dolphins quarterback named to the Pro Bowl. 
No team in the league has a longer drought. Good luck, Tua. 17. But good news for new Packers QB Jordan Love. Per ESPN, he's the first player since Marino in 1983 to get drafted in the first round after leading the FBS in interceptions. 18. Love was the first offensive skill player, meaning non-lineman, that the Packers picked in the first round since Aaron Rodgers in 2005. Speaking of Green Bay linemen, the Pack was initially ghosted by sixth-round G. John Runyon Jr., who accidentally declined the team's draft call while texting his agent. Rookie mistakes, etc. 19. Herbert became the first quarterback taken in round one by the Chargers, since Eli Manning went number one overall in 2004. 20. Since the common draft began, Florida, Michigan, Michigan State, and Southern California are the only schools to have at least one player drafted every year. Number 21. The Bengals made the first pick in every round. It's the third time that's happened in franchise history, but something no other team has ever done in the common draft era. 22. The Panthers became the first team since the common draft began to devote seven picks solely to defense in one draft. Carolina also became the first, dare we say, dare we assume only, team to draft a player who'd also played in the XFL, S. Kenny Robinson, formerly of the St. Louis Battlehawks and West Virginia prior to that. 23. Kudos to the new Redskins regime for finally putting an end to the Trent Williams saga getting a fifth-rounder and future third for the disgruntled left tackle. Washington very likely would have gotten far more had ousted team president Bruce Allen dealt Williams last year. And kudos to the 49ers for landing Williams, a seven-time pro bowler, as Joe Staley exits stage left. Further kudos to San Francisco CB Richard Sherman for reaching out to Williams after the two beefed following Seattle's 2012 wildcard win in Washington when Williams shoved the ever-chatty corner. Meanwhile, sure seems D.E. Yannick Nagakwe and the Jaguars are stuck with each other for a while, barring an injury to a pass rusher on a contender. 24. Raiders GM Mike Mayock has now picked five Clemson players over the course of his two drafts with the franchise. You should probably soon be comped a suite on the Vegas Strip, Dabo. 25. With Tugovailoa, L.T. Jedrick Willis Jr. in the Browns, W.R. Henry Ruggs for the Raiders, and W.R. Jerry Judy for the Broncos, all picked on Thursday, Alabama joined the 1968 USC Trojans as the only teams to have four offensive players selected in the first round. 26. New Jags O.L. Ben Barch played at Division III St. John's in Minnesota, making him the third D3 player picked since 2008. 27. The Colts made three consecutive picks in the sixth round. The last time a team had three successive selections was the Broncos, the seventh round in 2015, a trifecta that included QB Trevor Simon. 28. One guy we can all root for? Navy's Malcolm Perry, who just might be a weapon and could even spell Tugovailoa on occasion, after joining the Dolphins as a seventh rounder. 29. When Detroit picked Ohio State's Jeff Okuda with the number three pick, he became the highest draft corner 
since Ohio State's Sean Springs in 1997. If Lions coach Matt Patricia is going to use a pen, why does he always have that pencil tucked behind his ear? 30. Good news for undrafted free agents like Randy Moss's son, Thaddeus, who is headed to Washington. 17 Hall of Famers, guys like Kurt Warner, Warren Moon, and John Randall, didn't get a draft today call. And 31. The draft heads next to Cleveland. Assuming, God willing, it will actually be staged there as scheduled in 2021. Las Vegas is now slated to get its belatedly its belated opportunity in 2022. And finally, 32. Tough year to be Mr. Irrelevant. The coronavirus will likely prevent New Giants LB Tay Crowder, the 255th and final pick of this draft, from getting his trip to currently shuttered Disneyland as well as enjoying the other events Mr. Irrelevant annually enjoys in Newport Beach, California. The final article on the sports page, Shula was gruff but had softer side. This article is written by USA Today columnist Christine Brennan. The great Don Shula was a football genius, the winningest coach in NFL history, whose 1972 Miami Dolphins remain the league's only perfect team. Shula, who died Monday morning at 90, was a Hall of Famer in every way, a cornerstone of the game as it became America's pastime. I knew him as all that and more. It was the summer of 1980, and as a college intern at the Miami Herald, I was dispatched to Dolphins training camp with a specific assignment, to ask about problems with Miami's running game. Eight years earlier, as a young girl in Toledo, I had been writing fan letters to Shula and his players. Now, I was standing five feet from him in a knot of reporters and camera crews. It was the first time I had seen him in person. I was no longer a fan, I was a journalist, and this was no time to waver. Coach, what's wrong with the running game? Shula, who was sitting on a bench, slowly looked up to see who had asked that question. He clearly didn't like it. He glared at me. Well, you know, we ran the ball pretty well the other day, he started out, looking utterly disgusted with me. He then listed a few positive statistics about his running backs. I stood my ground and followed up by asking if he planned any changes. No. His stare told me there would be no more questions from me on that day. I was back at Dolphins camp the next week in the same gaggle of journalists when Shula smiled and said hello. It was the beginning of one of the most wonderful coach-reporter relationships I have ever had. When I returned to the Herald to start my career after finishing at Northwestern, my beat was college football. But I often was assigned to help out on the Dolphins, particularly on game days. I soon realized that the gruff and demanding Don Chula was, well, a feminist. Although he wouldn't have liked the term, certainly not back then, Normally, after games, I waited in loading docks under stadiums for players to be brought to me for interviews as the male reporters went into the locker room to do their jobs. But with the Dolphins, I walked right into the locker room with everyone else. Why? In 1981, Shula told all of his players that they were going to wear ropes because women like me were being assigned to cover the NFL and he was going to make sure we had the same access as men did. Leave it to the innovative mind of Don Shula to find a way to solve a problem before everyone else did. 
It wasn't until 1985 that NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle made equal locker room access mandatory for every team. And let's be honest, to this day, there are coaches who still believe women in sports media shouldn't be allowed equal access to conduct interviews and do their jobs. Shula had it all figured out before some of those guys were even born. After one game, I was in the Dolphins' locker room conducting an interview when I felt a slight tug on my elbow. I really didn't want to be interrupted. I kept on working. The tug came again. I swung around impatiently. It was Shula. Everything going okay in here? The question startled me. Uh, you bet, coach, I said, hoping I didn't look as perturbed as I felt a moment earlier. Everything's great, thanks. Good, he said, smiling kindly. Keep up the good work. Over the years, I ran into Shula at NFL meetings, and we always stopped and caught up. I called him occasionally for USA Today columns, seeking his thoughts on various subjects. He always was the voice of reason in the NFL. When the league was debating the use of instant replay, his words sealed the deal for many. If people sitting in their living rooms can see a play is called incorrectly, then we should be able to see it too, he said. The last time I spoke to him was several years ago. I interviewed him for a column I was writing. Then we talked about the old days in Miami. Anytime we spoke, I always made sure to thank him, as I did that day. For what, he said. For not going easy on me, I replied. For toughening me up when I was just starting. He laughed heartily. I wasn't that tough, was I? No, coach, not at all. Let's look now at the Iowa Life section. There's a photograph on the cover of this section today. It's a mason jar sitting on a cloth napkin that's folded into um, a square. And inside the mason jar is boba tea. It looks like a light brown liquid. The jar is full almost to the brim with the liquid. At the bottom third of that, you can see the dark brown spheres of boba. I think it's tapioca. We'll find out maybe in the article. Um, The bubbles from the boba tea. The jar has a metal lid on it and it does have a straw um, coming up through the center hole of that metal lid. The background is a tile a plain tile background, like a kitchen uh, backsplash. And the title of the article is Pearls of Wisdom, written by Kimmy Robinson from the Arizona Republic. Since moving to Phoenix, Arizona, from my hometown of Los Angeles six months ago, I've been on a mission to find the best milk tea boba in the valley. Multiple times a week, I'd drive up to 40 minutes to try out a new shop and record my experiences. It became a comforting ritual in an unfamiliar place. Finding a good cup of boba tea, or three, was an important part of my routine when I worked in downtown Los Angeles, and the first thing I researched when I learned I'd be moving to Phoenix was the number of boba shops in the area. My love for the chewy and sweet tapioca ball topping started in middle school, when my mom would occasionally treat me to a strawberry slushy with boba, at a local Chinese fast food restaurant after school. In college, I discovered a love of milk tea boba when I found out it was available at the on-campus coffee cart. While my peers were chugging coffee, my passion for trying boba was born. It became what my mom would call in Japanese, gambari am, a motivational treat. 
I've since tried various drinks from hundreds of shops in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York City, Tokyo, and of course around Phoenix. I didn't imagine there would come a time when I'd feel hard pressed to perfect my own recipe because it's not safe to leave my home. During these past four weeks of isolation, I've made a handful of trips to pick up boba drinks curbside in the name of supporting local businesses and while taking actions to prevent the spread of the new coronavirus, of course. But the craving for normalcy for a boba tea treat is still there. Thankfully, I'd bought Wu Fu Yuan's black sugar flavor tapioca pearls from 99 Ranch Market when I last visited LA. You will find similar pre-made boba at most Asian supermarkets. If there ever were a time to figure out how to make good boba tea at home, it's definitely when we are encouraged to stay home as much as possible. After one or two failed attempts that resulted in either tasteless or slightly burnt and crunchy boba, I have figured out a recipe that gives me the best results. Slightly bitter, slightly creamy, black milk tea with sweet and chewy boba. I prefer Earl Grey tea and find that whole milk makes the drink less watery than low fat. But substitute ingredients as you wish. And here's the Earl Grey milk tea boba recipe. This makes one serving. Two and a quarter cups of water, two bags of Earl Grey tea, one half tablespoon of cane sugar, three tablespoons of Wu Fu Yuan black sugar flavored tapioca pearls, two tablespoons of brown sugar, three tablespoons of whole milk, one and a half cups of ice. Bring one cup of water to a boil in a pot. Pour hot water over two bags of black tea in a cup. Leave to steep for about five minutes. Remove the tea bags and add about half of the cane sugar to the hot tea, depending on personal preference for sweetness of milk tea. Keep in mind the boba will make the drink sweeter. Refrigerate the cup of tea while preparing the boba around 20 minutes. Bring one and a quarter cups of water to a boil in a pot. Add boba and half the brown sugar. Cook on medium high heat for about 15 to 20 minutes, stirring occasionally so they don't stick to the bottom. Most of the water should be evaporated by now and the tops of the boba might be visible. Taste one to ensure the texture is chewy. Lower heat to medium and add the remainder of the brown sugar. Keep stirring until the water has evaporated and the boba has a molasses-like texture. Take off the heat. Add whole milk to Earl Grey tea and mix. Then pour boba into the drink. Add ice as desired. From the bottom of the life page, an article from the dietitian Jen Blazer. Daily activities will fight stress of quarantine. Being in quarantine is important right now, but we know it is tough to make good use of your time. Keeping your body and mind active will reduce stress and promote overall health. Here are some tips during this crucial time. Celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Throw a fiesta at home and get everyone involved. Having a positive and fun celebration is a great way to boost your mood. Dress up in bright festive colors. Play some fun background music and create a Taco Tuesday feast for your family with a make-your-own taco bar. Add a variety of colors and flavors with vegetables and spice it up with salsa or fresh cilantro. Don't forget the crunch of corn or whole grain tortillas and chips. Crunchy foods help you feel more satisfied with your meal and may reduce eating from boredom.
Spring clean your kitchen. Set yourself up for success with a clean and organized kitchen. Here is a spring cleaning checklist. If you're low on cleaning supplies, use a vinegar and water mixture, a two to one ratio, to clean countertops, appliances, and faucets. Clean your oven. Wipe out the refrigerator. Check expiration dates on all food, including dried herbs and spices. Organize underneath the sink. Clean the coffee maker. Wipe out the microwave. Start a garden. Have you ever started a garden before? If not, try starting with a small herb garden, which is low maintenance and oh so satisfying. Add fresh herbs into spring recipes, such as a vegetable frittata or a homemade strawberry basil lemonade. Spring clean your body. Hit refresh and refuel your body with nutrient-dense foods that will provide your body with an abundance of antioxidants, such as fresh berries, broccoli, beans, or quinoa. Bake fresh bread. There is nothing like homemade bread. The choice is yours, from banana bread to sourdough. Go for a walk in your neighborhood. Switch up your work-from-home routine by taking a 10-minute walk during your lunch break. Kids fit at home workouts. Free online workout streaming, 15 to 20 minute videos every day, seven days a week, starting at 9 a.m. Tune in at hivkidsfit.com or hstv.com. Take a nap. Adequate sleep promotes healthy weight management and will boost your mind. Do something you have been putting off. We all have that one project. Now is the time to go for it. Schedule FaceTime or video chats with friends and family. Human connection can reduce your sense of loneliness or stress. Don't be afraid to reach out to loved ones. Keeping your mind and body active and fueled properly during these concerning times is important for overall health. Allowing ourselves to fall out of a routine can lead to unwanted weight gain, a weakened immune system, anxiety and depression, systemic inflammation, and more. Try a few things on the list provided today to keep your body and mind feeling refreshed. And if you have a question for a high V dietitian, you can contact the author Jen Blazer at jblaser at hyvee.com or call at 515-223-4597. And of course, there is this caveat at the end of the piece. The information is not intended as medical advice. Please consult a medical professional for individual advice. Looking at the health section of the USA Today, there's an article here by Stephen Gruber-Miller. Are vitamins C and D now a COVID-19 treatment? Despite a lack of evidence that vitamins are effective against the novel coronavirus, a doctor with a history of making misleading claims said they are used as a treatment for the virus. An April 7th article on the website of the Organic Consumers Association by Joseph Mercola headlined, Vitamin C and D finally adopted as coronavirus treatment, claims that vitamin C and D are now finally being adopted in the conventional treatment of novel coronavirus. Mercola is a doctor of osteopathy who, who promotes alternative medicines. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued Mercola at least three warning letters accusing him of making false or misleading claims about products he promoted on his website. 
The information he's putting out to the public is extremely misleading and potentially very dangerous, Dr. Stephen Barrett told Chicago Magazine in 2012 in an article about Mercola. Barrett runs quackwatch.org, a medical watchdog website. He exaggerates the risks and potential dangers of legitimate science-based medical care, and he promotes a lot of unsubstantiated ideas and sells certain products with claims that are misleading. That was a quote from Dr. Barrett. Mercola's claim about vitamins and the coronavirus cites a New York Post article from March 24th that describes the use of vitamin C by Northwell Health, a New York hospital system, to treat patients with coronavirus. Northwell spokesperson Jason Molinette confirmed to USA Today that vitamin C was one of many therapies employed at the discretion of physicians in our health system. Molinette declined to answer follow-up questions about how widespread the use of vitamin C was, what the results of the treatment were, and what studies or data Northwell relied on when deciding whether to use vitamin C as part of COVID-19 treatment. He declined to make a doctor available to speak about the treatment, saying, that's the extent of our statement on this. William Shafter, medical director of the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases and a professor of infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine, said he's heard claims that vitamins C and D can be used either to prevent disease or to treat it. His quote, I sure wish they were true, but there's no evidence to support either of those vitamins being an effective either preventative or treatment in any dose. If that were true, believe me, it would be headline news and we would all be recommending it, he said. There is no evidence that taking extra vitamin C will fight against COVID-19. In fact, the body can only absorb a certain amount of vitamin C and any excess will be excreted, the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases says in a graphic on its website. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization said the only way to minimize the chances of contracting the virus is to take preventive steps such as social distancing from other people, frequent hand washing, and cleaning of often used surfaces. A research team at Zongnan Hospital in Wuhan, China, began a study on on vitamin C treatments for COVID-19 on February 14th. The program is likely to be completed at the end of September. No findings have been published. Clinical trials of various treatments for COVID-19 are underway, but many of those trials will not be completed for months. A study of one drug, remdesivir, showed it could modestly improve recovery time for patients with COVID-19, although the study's findings have not been peer-reviewed. The FDA issued an emergency approval for the drug Friday. The data shows that remdesivir has a clear-cut significant positive effect in diminishing the recovery time. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said Wednesday. Schaffner said many COVID-19 patients are treated based on anecdotal evidence, as doctors consult with patients and their families about the risks on a case-by-case basis. So here is our ruling on vitamin C and D as a treatment. False. The vitamin C is used, at least in one New York hospital system, to help treat some patients on a case-by-case basis, 
There is no known evidence to suggest it is effective. Occasional use of vitamins C or D in COVID-19 treatment at the discretion of a patient and doctor is not the same as saying they are being adopted in the conventional treatment of the coronavirus, as Mercola's article claims. Here's an article from the nation's health section of the USA Today. I may not get through the whole thing, but we'll give it a shot. This is by Aaron Richards, Erika Heron, and MJ Slaby. The title, It Took a Pandemic, But Teachers Finally Respected. Remember when you didn't think about teachers much all day? They taught fractions in literature behind closed doors. Their work felt normal and necessary. We knew some were underpaid and underappreciated. Strikes that shut down schools in Seattle, Los Angeles, and Chicago stirred public support and highlighted teachers' plight. Then, public schools serving approximately 55 million children in America shut down, leaving parents to oversee the academic progress of their children at home. Through the, through the coronavirus pandemic, millions of families realized that teachers are not just convenient, but essential. How most teachers are being viewed right now is right up there with healthcare workers, said Ruth Faden, a professor of biomedical ethics at Johns Hopkins University. Now is the time to give the biggest possible shout out to teachers. To be sure, some educators have become less visible and some families have been frustrated by a lack of planning or too many expectations. But overall, millions of educators have risen above what they were trained to do, throwing themselves not only into online teaching with virtually no preparation, but also into other impromptu roles video editor, device distributor, tech support, meal site worker, car parade driver, sidewalk chalk writer, window waver. From the extraordinary to the everyday, here are a few of their stories. Owl Vomit, Gross, Brandon Gilliam, Stoutfield Elementary, Indianapolis. Many teachers have sent handwritten notes to students' homes. Science teacher Brandon Gilliam sent Owl Vomit. Owl pellets, or undigested masses of bones and fur regurgitated by owls, are a popular dissection project for fifth graders, and Gilliam gets a large shipment each year. This year, he distributed them to students at home. Gilliam, 34, created science experiment videos from home, which students can recreate with items they have around the house. The idea, said Gilliam, who is in his 12th year of teaching, is to keep kids learning, engaged, and having fun during the extended school closure. Typically, I'm pretty goofy, he said. Be more ridiculous than my students. That's always my goal. 3D printers to help nurses. Brandon Myers, Maxwell High School, Atlanta. When manufacturing teacher Brandon Myers learned doctors and nurses suffered from chafed ears caused by their protective masks, he thought he and his students could help. Myers and his students had networked six of the school's 3D printers, and they were experimenting with a remote operating system that would let students control the printers from home, from off-site. After the school shutdown, Myers was allowed to scoop the printers into his car and set up the chain in his garage. Students found a pattern from the National Institutes of Health for Ear Relief, and they set to work programming the production process from their homes, while Myers made manual adjustments from his garage. 
Soon, they had produced more than 600 plastic mask strap extenders that put pressure on the wearer's head instead of the ears. Myers and the students then shifted to creating the frames for face shields. They've made about 100 of those. All have been delivered to local healthcare partners. Technology teachers and students all over the country have teamed up with healthcare organizations to create and give away face shields and other protective equipment. Teachers often buy materials such as 3D printer filament at their own expense. Myers, 38, is in his second year of teaching. He previously worked for a company that repaired nuclear energy facilities. His class revolves around the production of real-world real world products for clients, and he said he treats his students like project managers. I always give them projects that are a little harder than I think they can do, and that seems to motivate them, he said. Part of my healing. Taisha Hoskins, Harlem Link Charter School, New York. Taisha Hoskins has always felt called to help, first as a social worker, then as a fourth grade teacher at Harlem Link Charter School. It's her second year of teaching, but Hoskins, 32, has spent her life serving the neighborhood where she was born and raised. During the pandemic, Hoskins has helped her 25 students log on every day for Zoom sessions, and remarkably, all but two or three students attend most days. Most low-income schools like hers have struggled to connect and engage all students. For the first two weeks, Hoskins said all she did was comfort students and talk to them about their emotions. Through it all, Hoskins was quietly caring for her sister, a 46-year-old community liaison at Bellevue Hospital who contracted COVID-19 in late March. On April 16th, her sister died. Hoskins took a little time off to handle family matters and returned last week to a welcome video made by her students and fellow teachers. I'm fortunate to be in the community teaching kids here, Hoskins said. They're an important part of my healing. Okay, this will have to be the last one. Symphony from Home, Jeff Midkiff, Patrick Henry High School, Roanoke, Virginia. Orchestra students at Patrick Henry High School were pumped to play Carnegie Hall during a school trip this spring. They had practiced all year for it. Then coronavirus shut down the trip and school. Their teacher, Jeff Midkiff, 56, saw videos from the Rotterdam Philharmonic and other professional orchestras playing together from their homes. Could his students do that? Midkiff, who has been teaching for 30 years, recorded himself playing the first violin part of William Boyce's Symphony No. 1 with a metronome, then sent the video to his students so they could listen while playing their individual parts. It was the same movements students would have played at Carnegie Hall. About 40 students participated. Midkiff sent the files to his nephew, Riley Murtaugh, at Lift Arc Studios in Roanoke, who spent at least 10 hours stitching all the tracks together. Midkiff and his students plan a repeat play-at-home performance, this time performing The Star-Spangled Banner and Pomp and Circumstance, which will be played during the high school's live-streamed virtual graduation June 4th. Okay, back to the register for Dear Abby. The title of the column today, Churlish Customers Make Life Even More Stressful. And the article says, Dear Abby, I work in the deli department of a grocery store. With everything that is going on, people are overwhelmed and have been taking it out on us. 
I asked one person, how are you doing today? And the response I got was, I'm not interested in conversation. Just feed me. Another who came to the register didn't utter a single word except to exclaim when I offered her a bottle opener for her soda. I've got it. Then she snatched her change out of my hand. We employees are stressed out about the same things everyone else is. We are struggling to get the same products everyone else is searching desperately for. I had to shop at five different stores to get what I need and still haven't found many things. Between the stress of the virus and the stress of being treated so rudely, my mental health is running low. I have struggled on and off with depression and anxiety, and many of my coping methods are unavailable to me due to closures. Could you please remind your readers that we are all in the same boat and need to be kind to one another and direct those of us who are struggling to resources we can access during this time of panic? Signed, Struggling in Retail. Abby says, Dear Struggling, because you have had issues with depression and anxiety in the past, consider contacting the therapist you worked with and ask if the person is doing online sessions. However, if that isn't possible, consider exploring whether there, is, there are online support groups for retail workers such as you. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Des Moines Register for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020, Cinco de Mayo. You can hear this again at 6 p.m. and again at 1 a.m. Recordings are available on our website, iowaradioreading.org. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of Iowans who are print disabled. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 515-243-6833. You can also call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa, one 404 4747. Once again, we want you to know that our program schedule has changed so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m. Monday through Friday and the midweek shopping cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's been a pleasure to read for you today. Stay tuned now for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.